Hey there, it's Mike Tramp, and you're listening to White Lion Fever, where rock and roll is still alive like it always has been and it always will be. first guest is someone you heard in the last program, and that's Cherie Curry, formerly The Runaways, and we're speaking to her about her upcoming record, as yet untitled. And Cherie, you did mention that The Runaways movie just changed things for you, and perhaps for everyone who was in the band. Uh, was, was it all positive? Uh, the, the, that uh, Was there any negative aspects to the, the movie and the impact it had? No, not at all. I, I think that, uh, my goodness, it's kind of tame what we went through almost in a way compared to... Uh, you know, what people go through today. Even even television is far more racy than that movie was, <laughs> <laughs> I think. But, so, I you know, because I wore a corset uh, for three minutes, uh, you know, singing Cherry Bomb, people still talk about how racy I was. And I think, really? Compared <laughs> to television these days? Really? Yeah. Or even, even Beyonce or... Any of these people that are on stage now, they were far less clothes than, than the Runaways ever did. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it just times have changed so much. I do love the fact that so many girl bands are coming out now, and, and kids just have uh, this, this feeling that they can do anything. And for me, that's the way I've always wanted them to feel, because they can. Yeah. The, the movie is based on your book, and now Leader's put a book out as well. Have you, have you read Leader's book yet, or...? I haven't read her book. I'm actually having dinner with her uh, in, in about a week. Uh, but I have read particular segments of voice. She, she holds nothing back, and uh, it's a very brave book for what I've read. Did, did, the, did the movie um, bring you together with the other girls? Did it bring you closer together? Because I know there's this, you know, this very highly publicized difference of opinion with Jackie Fox about, about those events with Kim Fowley. Did, did the did the movie have a um, um, a sort of a, a, a bonding effect with you and 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 the other girls, or is there still a bit of resentment and and ill feeling over that issue? Well, no. I mean, Jackie. Unfortunately, uh, when we reached out to her to participate in the film, she went to John and Art Linson and and was demanding just huge amounts of money, and also she was demanding to be a producer and. And uh, they tried to reason with her, but she was holding fast. And and John and Art Linson, of course, they've made films like, you know, Fight Club and Into the Wild. I mean, countless great movies, and they were having none of it. And yeah. they, just, they just threw her out of the film entirely, wouldn't even use her name, no matter how much me and Joan tried to change their mind. Yeah. And then, of course, Lita... She was married at the time, and her husband didn't even let her read the contract or told her not to read the contract, so she was basically out of the film. Mm. And and that was too bad, because it would have been a completely different movie. Yeah. But but um, th- there was nothing that Joan and I could do with that. Yeah. So, uh, but, but you know what? Exactly the reason why I became close with Kim was to fix all those feelings that I had Mm. with him as a young girl, and I reached out to Joan when she was having dinner with Lita to ask Lita to, have, to, to meet up with me. I hadn't seen her in 30 years, and Lita was thrilled to do it, and 
next thing I knew, we were uh, friends. And yeah. uh, she was coming to my kid's show, Jake. Of course, he is a very successful band, Modern Strangers. And and uh, we did a lot of things together, and I did a duet with her out of her Christmas single. And then I invited her to work with me on this record, on Reverie. Mm. So uh, I really strongly suggest that people, when... There are things that haunt them, and if they can do it, reach out and fix it, because there's no reason for you to continue to live with all those bad feelings, you know. Yeah, um, I want to talk about some esoteric things like that in the third part of the interview, but just more sort of mundane, the whole reunion thing, even though you seem to be closest to Joan, and Joan worked with you on the movie, Joan seems to be the one who's less inclined to, to even do a, a to do a run of shows. That's the way it looks from the outside. Is that is that the way it is from your perspective? Well, you know, it's funny because a little over twenty years ago, Lita had reached out to us uh, to convince Joan to do a Runaways reunion, and uh, we did. So mm. we we uh, with Kenny Laguna basically at the helm. Um, he secured a record deal and a tour, and then Lita just she doesn't get along with 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 Kenny, and she just walked from that. Mm. And so now she's come back, and she does. I've always wanted a reunion, and I've worked with absolutely every single one of the girls since the band dissolved. I've worked with Jackie, Sandy, Lita, and Joan um, separately, uh, but but I've performed with all of them. So I really did see a, a Runaways union, reunion happening, but now I don't believe it will because mm. Lita and Joan just can't seem to to figure that out. So I now say, nah, it's not going to happen, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. You, the power of reunions, I know you won't be as big as Guns N' Roses, but you look at what's happening there at the moment with uh, basically, you know, Duff and, and uh, Slash hired by Axel's band and their... You know, they just got money falling out of the sky. <laughs> it's it's a it's a big business reunions, isn't it? At the moment, you know. Right. Well, I always yeah. thought that we we had to have a reunion. So mm. I, I mean, it was very very disappointing for me over a number of years. Mm. I mean, for twenty years actually, when we had it in the bag and Lita walked, and uh, so that was very difficult. And then now it just seemed like the right time. Actually, five years ago would have been the perfect time when the movie came out, but. Um, you know, I, I can't control how other people feel. Mm. So it was very important for me to just say, you know what, this isn't going to happen, and mm. and walk away from it. And and that's really what I've done. But the one thing that I can do is perform runaway songs that Lita and Joan will never do, and mm. give give the audiences a, a chance to uh, hear those songs. Okay, time for another song. What do you got for us? I would love for you to play Reverie, the title track of my new album.
Till darkness falls Anticipating more Than I did the night before Okay, welcome back. Final part of our interview with Charlie Benante from um, Anthrax, and we are running over time. So we'll, we'll, the third segment will be a bit a bit more quick than the first two. But uh, uh, Charlie, so tell us. Uh, we know I've seen your tour dates online. Um, what, what can you tell us any more about the touring plans on uh, the back of uh, this album, For All Kings? Well, I mean, all I know is that right now is we're we're finish, finishing up this tour with uh, Lamb of God in two weeks. And then we go to South America with uh, this band called Iron Maiden. Um, <laughs> Never heard of them. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then we go do some festival shows here in America. And then we go do some shows in Europe. That's all I know as of right now. Right. I, I, I don't like, I, I, I hate to talk about like the future because I always find that when you have all these things scheduled, lined up, and you talk about it, it seems like your life goes faster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and can you tell us? I mean, we sh- we haven't really talked about the record that much. So, let- what what did you try to achieve on it? Like, did you did you did you have an objective beyond let's put out the best record we can? Or was there a I mean, was there a direction, a theme? I know we've already covered the fact that there's some sort of social commentary in there, but what what was, what, what did you try to achieve? I think the thing that we we're trying to achieve was um, since the worship music record was so well received um, and we had no expectations about that record um, 
we just made a record that w what we felt was just really good songs. And honestly, that's what happened with this record too. It just, once the record started to take shape, and I, I always say this, uh, after we have like five or six songs, really have an idea of where the record is going at that point. Mm. And, and then there'll, there'll come a song like Blood Eagle Wings that is like a seven minute song. Mm. And it just uh, sets the mood. It just, you know, helps make this record um, of, a, you know, a variety, mm. you know? Mm. Do you see, last question and we'll go to the third song, and you can pick it, I won't lead you in any way, um, but uh, do you see this as, a, as just an ongoing cycle where, you know, there'll be four or five, I know you said you don't like talking about the future, but is there any reason to think there'd be a change of direction? Is there any reason to think, I don't know, that you'd be ever ever do a farewell tour? Is there any, is, have you ever thought about any, anything down the track, or is it just put out, put out the best record you can every four or five years and tour and see what happens? Well... Honestly, the way I felt, the way I feel about this record is the Worship Music record came out and gave us a whole new life, a whole new outlook on music in general and, and everything. This, to me, this next record is like our second record. So <laughs> I, I really feel, you know, inspired. I have this momentum. I just have a, a good... We're in a better place now than we were, say, 10 years ago. Okay. Awesome. Okay. Well, I won't lead you. I'll let you pick the next song. Uh, what do you got for us? <laughs> uh, this song is by Britney Spears. Oh, baby. <laughs> uh, I don't even know why I said Britney Spears. Who the fuck is that? Everyone's already forgotten her. <laughs> Yeah, it's gone, done. Goodbye. Uh, well, this next song we're going to play is our, our single, I would say, and this, this one's called Breathing Lightning.
everybody, this is Charlie from Anthrax, and you are listening to White Line Viva. So this is one of those interviews that we uh, repurpose. Um, so I initially got in contact with uh, this fellow to do um, to, to speak to him about the World Cup bid for the United States 2021, and uh, the, had a little segment on uh, NRL 360 recently, but a longer conversation on the program here. It's uh, Jason Moore. How are you, Jason? I'm very well, thank you, Steve. Now. You're in New York at the moment. I, I would imagine uh, this has not... It's For us, it's just jumped out of the blue. Uh, but for you, you've been working on it for quite some time. Yes, well, we've been uh, looking at it uh, for a number of months, actually, since earlier this year. Um, we had some dialogue um, around the United States in relation to rugby league, rugby league development throughout the course of last year. And then when the opportunity arose that uh, the AOIF were looking for... The bids beyond, obviously, you know, Australia and uh, the UK, uh, we thought, well, now's the best time as ever. Uh, so we started, uh, we, we got the, the bid information and started putting it all together. To what extent um, are you working side by side with the current governing body in the US and to what extent is this a completely independent bid? Uh, it's not completely independent. Um, and they're not not working with the USARL. Um, look, they're a, a small uh, amateur-based organisation that, uh, you know, for the size, the scale of what needs to be done here, um, it is a private consortium bid, mm. which is different to I mean, the way these things normally go together. Mm. But the main thing is, is that this is about you know, product delivery, major event delivery, um, so for everything from logistics, transportation, accommodation, but also venues, venue management and selection, and of course the most important thing, you know, the marketing of the event and the integration of it into the American sports landscape. Yeah. How do we balance, like, as you'd be aware, I'm sure people have explained to you, and you probably knew anyway, the, the World Cup is the only, at the moment, the only event the RLIF has, and so... On one hand, it's it's a good vehicle to promote the game in new territory, but on the other hand, it's a cash cow, um, and without it, they don't have any money for four years. So, how or you know, obviously you've got TV rights, but how um, how do you balance that? Can are you confident that a World Cup in the United States would make a profit and would make a comparable profit to to uh, to the last couple? Um, look, this is the largest consumer product and sports market on the planet. Uh, the, the the venues and the existing infrastructure that are here are the end of the planet. Mm. Um, there is no no sort of mixing words around it. It's the fact that you know, we've been talking with major league soccer venues that hold between sort of seventeen and twenty. 
25,000, as well as some of the good big NFL venues for more of the marquee matches. Um, the integration into the sports landscape here, they've got a good runway of several years to market into the regions, um, both, both locally, uh, where the games are held, but also nationally. And further to that, internationally, um, we see this as a massive opportunity for inbound tourism in this region, given, you know, we're talking about marquee cities, San Francisco, Denver, New York, Chicago. Houston, um, as well as sort of holiday destinations such as Orlando, Florida, where there's you know Disney World and all the movie worlds, etc. So there's a, a very, very appealing um, destination tourism marketing piece in this to attract you know people from Australia, New Zealand, and the United Kingdom in those core rugby rugby league markets. Um, then you mix that in with us and our marketing plans into the uh, college football and NFL fan, um, I think you'll find that the success of this will be uh, unparalleled. In fact, this will probably be the most successful World Cup because it will be seen as very much so as an international high-scale premium um, global event and the Americans turn out for sport. Um, The Copa America soccer tournament that was just here recently more than doubled the attendance of any event that has previously been done outside of the United States. Mm. Uh, the Soccer World Cup that was here in 1994, if it's not still the holder of the attendance and merchandise sales record for all Soccer World Cups, it's pretty close to it. Mm. So when you put a major event in the United States, they turn out and they turn up and they're very, very interested. And I think that, um, you know, the way that our bid's been constructed, where we're guaranteeing you know, millions of dollars into the direct uh, growth of junior rugby league and rugby league in general in the United States, um, it's a very compelling um, case and offer that we've put together. We could talk about this for ages. It's absolutely intriguing, but we haven't got ages. So can you tell us a little bit about um, what you are planning on a domestic level between now and 2021? Yeah, look, we're looking at starting an elite standard uh, professional competition in 2018. We've still got a bit of work to do there um, throughout the course of the year. We're we're looking at markets saying uh, rugby league. We're looking at presenting a product that will be delivered in the way that Americans consume sport. And uh, we're looking at putting that into the NFL. uh, So schedule which we're going straight after that NFL fan and college football fan that um, basically baseball and, and on the on thoughts right at that particular time and we're going to them because we you know, we want to continue what sort of Jared Haynes showed to a lot of people and that is that the running lines of an NRL player and an NFL player are too dissimilar and we think that the American sports public will, particularly that, 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 that American football fan, will, will latch onto it. You probably would have a little bit of a knowledge of um, rugby league's uh, turbulent uh, history in the United States, going back to the All Stars in 1953 and through Mike Mayer and right up to recent times with David Newey and all and the Sevens and all these stories. What, where, why do you? I know there's a broad brush uh, question, but why do you think you can succeed where all these guys have failed? 
an answer in November from the RLIF, is that correct? Well, that's what we're told. Uh, that's what the, um, the, the, the status is at the moment. Uh, um, look, I, there's a lot of water under the bridge. We need to really put our case forward. And we've presented that big documentation. Uh, we're expecting them to come back with any questions and clarification points. But, but obviously, uh, yes, as you said earlier, there's a lot of People have felt this has come out of left field. Um, so, yeah, they're, they're, it is going to be a difficult one for them to to uh, evaluate based mm. on the fact that they, you know, we're approaching it differently. Yeah. Finally, I think we better... I've taken too much of your time already, but I, I just wondered, often in these situations, uh, a governing body will say, oh, well, you can't have the next one, but we'll give you the one after that. Does that, an- does that answer work for you in any way, shape or form, 2025? Um, it doesn't really, no. Um, it's almost like we'll shut the gate of horses bolt. This is a golden opportunity for rugby league that may be a once-in-a-generation lifetime scenario. Mm. Uh, the, the Rugby Union World Cup basically can't come here before 2023. It'll be a great um, piece of uh, rugby league global marketing um, to get in ahead of that, um, certainly before 2027, but also to perhaps be the dominant rugby code in the United States because of the hosting of the World Cup, you know, the marketing. But it is also something that uh, the RLIF should consider as a, as a bold statement. Yeah. I'm the American people and saying, we're going to bring our flagship event to the United States. Yeah. Um, that had a lot of positive and very strong connotations attached to it. I think, I think that's a good point you make, is that rugby union has perhaps um, taken the opportunity to subjugate rugby league in many parts of the world over the last sort of 120 years and this is an opportunity for rugby league to actually become what Americans think of when they hear the word rugby which is a, an opportunity that probably won't come again Yeah well I mean whether I'm around in 2025 to uh, keep pushing the barrel or not it's a different, a different story um, mm. I, I'd, I'd, I'd like to think that they see this as a golden opportunity mm. and one that you know why wait you can go to you can go back to England in 2025 and it's not going to make any difference whatsoever yeah yeah, yeah. Um, but coming to the United States is a bold statement yeah yeah and and finally I know I said the last said two questions ago is finally but in 2018 are you looking at a national professional league run over a short season or are you looking to because obviously the current existing competition is played in conferences and is a, sort of a local a local competition, isn't it? 
Uh, no, we're looking at an elite standard, um, uh, you know, smaller version of the NRL, to be honest. Um, yeah. We're not looking at uh, having really too much to do with the way that exists. Amateur competition is done. Um, this is an elite standard professional national competition spread across um, eight to ten locations in the country. And over a number of years, we're looking to grow it to a, probably a 16 to 18 team competition. And it'll be a new, a new destination for professionals from England and Australia, perhaps, and a, a new competitor in the player market? Well, that's what we'd like to see. I mean, we, we will be using international players and international professionals and international administrators mm. Um, mm. in order to get the standard of the game lifted quite significantly in, in an immediate way. Mm. So, look, this is a great opportunity for player talent and referee matches for good growth. Mm. Um, you know, this will be, you know, it's obviously not going to be NRL standard in year one, but yeah. we'd like to think in sort of five to seven years' time we can get there. And if, if there's no World Cup in 2021, there's there's no elite standard competition in 2019 or 2018? No, that's not the case. Um, oh. The competition is something that we're working on anyway, but certainly that's part of the plan that holds. They are separate, but there's a, there is a connection. Yeah. Jason, um, I know the conversation went a bit longer than we planned. Uh, thank you very much. No problems at all. Thanks, Steve. Anytime. Trust, that's what it is, and always was.
Hey, this is Michael Starr. This is Lexi Fox. And you're listening to White Lion Fever. Welcome back to the program. Second part of interview with Michael Wilton from Queensryche. Michael, you mentioned in the last uh, time we spoke to you about um, Todd Latore and, and how what an accomplished musician he is. Do you find yourself sort of being happy for him that, that with all the talent he's had and all the years he's put in, um, that he's sort of got his moment in the sun now. He's getting his recognition. Um, I think that's you know that's part of the game. But he's such a team player; it's almost reciprocal. You know, it's a, he's doing this because he just wants the band to succeed. You know, and and to bring it back to a at a certain you know stage that um, you know that there's respect again, mm. and uh, there's respect in the industry, and there's respect with uh, you know our fellow musicians in the world. Mm. And I think he's. Uh, that's what I mean. He's a very, he's very much a team player, and you know that's that's the key thing right there. Mm. And uh, but of course, you know he, he gets the adulation, you know the accolades, and, and uh, um, there's nothing wrong with that. You know him building his personal career as well. You know that's something that's going to come along with this uh, journey with Queensrÿch. The um, you, I was just doing a little bit of research, and the, the podcast aspect of this is. Um, a sport and music podcast, and you've got a big history in sports. You actually toured Europe with a um, with a baseball team. Can you tell us a bit about that? Oh, you're talking, you know, decades and decades. Yeah, decades yeah. Ago. That's a um, yeah. I mean, before I became a musician, I was a jock. You know, I played <laughs> baseball, I played football, I you know, I did all that stuff in school, and um, you know, I, I got on one of those uh, you know select traveling uh, baseball teams. We went to Europe and uh, uh, played, you know, other teams. Baseball, you know, back then, they, they weren't really that established in the other leagues in, in other countries. So it was, it was kind of more of just a, a vacation. So, <laughs> um, did, did, do you, did, did you, did you have a point? Yeah, it was, it was, I was actually pretty good. You know, I played, <laughs> I played second base and I played third base, you know, and I was, I was, uh, you know. I had uh, quick hands and good eyes. I guess that's that's a good attribute to have for a baseball player. <laughs> was there a point where you had to make a choice, Michael, between sport and, and music? Yes, there was. And it, it happened um, when I was in high school, and I went to the Black Sabbath concert. Um, I think it was the Never Say Die tour where Van Halen opened for them. And Van Halen opened, and I had never seen them live, and they opened with this song called On Fire. Yeah. And that moment, I think I was a bit hazed <laughs> at that concert, too, and, but it just amplified, you know, the surroundings around me. And I, I, when that song started and I saw him on stage, I, I knew that's what I wanted to do. And wow. that's, that was the decisive moment, you know, and I, I, cause I thought, you know, a baseball thing, you know, it's all, it's all so political, you know, and it's all who knows who, you know, I'm, I'm going to be a musician. I'm going to have my freedom. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it is and, interesting. Uh, sorry, Michael, keep going. Sorry. <laughs> I was just going to say it's more political and, and, and it's more who, you know, in the music industry than it probably is in the, in the baseball industry. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly is. I mean, do, do you ever think about the similarities and the differences? I mean, I always think the one thing about writing about sports is that if someone drops the ball, they drop the ball. It's subjective, and if everyone saw it, whereas if someone put out a good record or a bad record, it's completely subjective. You know what I mean? Um, you, there are some there are some similarities, I guess, in that you're in the entertainment industry, but then there's some very 
very different um, things about it. Do you ever think about the maybe what would have happened if you'd stayed in baseball and about the difference between some of the, the some of the differences between the industries? Um, you know, I, somewhat. I, I think I'm more interested in, in the the physical aspect of it. You know, I, I I play golf now. I don't play baseball anymore, but I play golf, and and golf, you know, is there's so much involved in that sport that people don't see, you know, and it's just the the the, the muscle memory, the uh, the the practice that is needed and involved over and over and over, and I relate that to my guitar playing. You know, it's like. Mm. You know, I try and uh, fiddle around on the guitar just as much, but from the point of view of maybe uh, what a golfer would do. Yeah, yeah. Can I ask you one more thing before we go to the next song? Um, a lot of these interviews now when I talk to uh, um, bands of a certain vintage, they talk about grunge and how grunge came along and ruined everything. You guys had a front row seat uh, in Seattle. Um, I, I just thought that maybe you'd have a different perspective on, on that. You know, all the L.A. bands are kind of like, oh, you know, as soon as uh, Nirvana came out, we, we were we were done for. But, I mean, do you? Ha- I imagine you might have a more nuanced view of that given that you, you, were, you saw it, the whole thing developing at close range, you know? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was a, definitely a turbulent time. But, you know, the, let's face it, the industry got stale, you know, and it, it was... Uh, change was needed and it happened. Mm. And you saw it first off and it started in Seattle and um, you know and, and we knew, we knew those guys and those bands and, and uh, um, you know I was I was totally happy for them mm. I was like right on you know this this industry needs a shot in the arm you know if it, um, and that that's what happened you know and it was uh, um, and then again you know the whole media latched onto it and you know, the fashion industry flashed onto it, you know. Mm. Yeah. You know, the, the, the outerwear that they were wearing is, you know, grungy. You know, it was like... But anyway, I mean, that was, you know, my, my perspective on it. I thought, you know, like, music goes in cycles, you know, and it goes in and out, and when things, you know, get too saturated, you know, something new has to happen. And it's it's like a never ending process, you know, and it's it's always gonna you know, change. Yeah, just, yeah. just like the record industry is always changing, you know. Technology is, is changing it, you know, every day. So it's uh you know, yeah. and that kinda dictates uh, the type of music that's being written, uh, sometimes. So um Okay. Who knows what the next uh, trend will be. Time, time for another song because we are running out of time, Michael. We've got one more segment to the interview to go. What, what do you got for us? Um, here's a song off the Condition Human album. This is called Toxic Remedy.
Welcome back to the program, and we're back with Aaron um, from Scorpion Child talking about the new um, album uh, Acid Roulette. Uh, Aaron, how, since since the band actually sort of put out first long uh, play, I almost said long playing record, first CD, first album. Um, <laughs> how's how has your life changed? You've seen a fair bit of the world, I'd imagine. Um, would, do you think you would have seen a, a gone to England and Europe and all that sort of stuff anyway, or has has music already? And being in a band already had a massive impact on your on your life and changed your life. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, I think it's it's uh, it's been a tremendous feat to be able to take music with you on vacation <laughs> and force people into a room where they're confined to listening to you for an hour at a time. <laughs> you know, normal people don't pack that into their suitcase. <laughs> So what would you be doing otherwise? What do you think you'd be doing otherwise if you weren't doing this? I think there was only one thing I could do in my life well, and it was this. Right. I really don't, like ever since I was young, you know, my mom would tell me to perform, you know, just a little thing, you know, like a little dance and song to to family and friends that would come over, and it would always really embarrass me, and I'd be like, Mom... She'd be like, oh, honey, but you're so talented. You know, you just need to show people that. So I was like, one day I was like, you know what? Maybe I can do this. So what did I do? I started like a hardcore band or a punk, or a punk band. 
in, in, in the basement and just played and screamed my head off and made a bunch of racket. And then she wasn't so into it anymore. <laughs> she, you know, she was like, why don't you try your hand at college and athletics and, you know, and, and whatnot. And that didn't work either. So she finally just had to accept the fact that I was going to do this. Mm. And she supports it now. She loves it. I mean, my parents, you know, they've flown to France to see us play Hellfest, and, you know, it's, they're very supportive now. Do you they, think- now that they realize that, I, you know, everything else is just kind of a failed attempt at trying to get me to conform. <laughs> <laughs> Do you feel like you're part of a scene? Do you feel that there there is a scene? I know... Every, every interview you do, people talk about fuzz rock in the 1970s and stuff like that. Um, but do you ne- but do you need to kind of be part of a scene to get to a certain point? Um, or, or do you feel like you've sort of... Uh, it's still down to other people interpreting what you do and, and it, you know? Um, if, if you mentioned a scene, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's an interesting word because there are bands that are on our label... And there are bands that kind of we all get we all get put into this this category. You know, in the '90s it was grunge. That was the last amazing wave of classic rock that should be here to for its uh, you know unbridled you know incredible power that it had and impact that it had on on what was going on at the time to, to completely change. Have a band like Nirvana completely change. Uh, from 80s rock to this is the new thing now. And uh, I think something else is going on now. There's a lot of like psych rock, like a lot of like psychedelic or heavy psych or, you know, psych is, is the new emo. It's the new <laughs> grunge. It's the new word that's being overused, but I guess they're also kind of saying retro rock or mm. throwback or, you know, all these just gnarly terms. They can't really find one to really call us this one thing yet mm. so we're all kind of like trying to figure out what we're going to be called next <laughs> but meanwhile while we're doing that you know everyone's just trying to write music mm. and and be their own band with their own identity so you have all these bands that i'm sure you can name like two dozen bands that are you know making waves right now and really kind of up and coming uh trying to keep rock and roll alive thing and then, you know, I kind of think of it as, like, is it a scene? Mm. I don't think it's any more of a scene than it was for, you know, New Wave mm. or for goth or for metal. You know, it's, it's kind of just like uh, some bands are friends with one another. Like, you know, we support everyone that's doing this. And I think that they support us. And, you know, but we're kind of like we do our own thing, you know, like. I, it's not that I don't feel like we're definitely a part of it, because I don't know what it is right now. Tell me. And I think that, that we're a part of something. I think everybody's a part of it evolving something, and I think collectively it's keeping uh, rock music alive when everyone seems to, in the mainstream, seems to want it to die. Mm. You know, like like the, the massive pop media, you know... They they just kind of see like huge uh, two bit pop music and you know I'm not complaining about it I mean you know the the Biebers of the world like the easily digested uh, songs that everybody can sing along to the very club stuff the very dance stuff 
all that stuff's kind of just become massive. Mm. And there's not much room in hip-hop, everything, like, become massive. And there's very little space on the ballot anymore for rock. Yeah. But the funny thing is, is everybody plays guitar, and everybody seems to be in a rock band. Yeah. So there's so many rock bands, so they're never going to kill us. Mm. Yeah. They're never going to die. Yeah. You know, punk is not dead. Rock is not dead. It's all dead. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's not being heard by the masses now. Yeah. And, you know, we write songs, and hopefully one day someone's going to have the songs that are really going to grab the attention for all the other bands. Yeah. Yeah. We're uh, here. We're still here, you know. Let's have another song. What, what song can we have? Uh, Winter Side of Deranged. Hey, all my children!
got a white line fever. Going down, land down under. Going to turn around the corner, way down yonder. <laughs> but I'm not even going to try to rhyme anymore. <laughs> Michael Monroe here for White Line Fever. You get a chance, come and check us out live. We're going to rock your socks off and whatever, rock like fuck. That's what I say, okay? <laughs> come on down and rock on.